Well, good evening. Good evening. We'll open up to, uh, we're on page 33 tonight. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for Jesus. God, I just pray for the spirit of truth to be in our midst tonight. God, we ask for truth to be revealed. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is high above all rulers and principalities, powers, and authorities. That he is supreme. That he will be made preeminent in all things. Jesus, you are king, and we love you. Amen. Amen. So last week we talked about uh, fear, anxiety, and depression <clears throat> and tried to hit the root issue of that and really it comes down to our belief about God as Father. So fear, anxiety, depression, it hits your belief system. Who do you say that the Father is? Is he going to protect you? Does he care about you? Is he going to provide for you? <clears throat> this week, as we look at condemnation and shame and guilt, what's going to be brought to the forefront tonight is what do you really believe about the finished work of the cross? So last week was what did you believe about the Father? Today is going to be what do you believe about Jesus and his cross? We talk about it, we celebrate the cross, we use the language, but really inside of us there is a belief system that's connected to condemnation, shame, and guilt that's directly connected to the cross of Jesus. So let's flip back again to page, um, page six. There's that quote by Tozer we read. We're going to read it again, and I made a little adjustments to his quote. I don't think he would mind because it's going to stay biblical here. So on page six, two primary keys to healing and restoration. If you don't have one of these books, please lift up your hand. We'll get you one. Okay, page six. So what comes into our minds when we think about the cross of Christ is, most important, is the most important thing about us. The most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives the finished work of the cross to be like. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about the cross, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. The man who comes to a right belief about God or about the finished work of the cross is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. This is the truth. If you think right about the finished work of the cross, shame, guilt, and condemnation will have absolutely no place in your life. If you think right about it, if you know what the cross of Christ has obtained for us in our relationship with God the Father. So flip back over to our chapter 6. We are going to start on page 34, part 2. 
And we're just going to look at some definitions of shame and guilt. So page 34, the bottom portion there under that red line, part two, shame and guilt. So let's just read through this looking at the definition here. So guilt, it's that state of a moral agent which results from his actual commission of a crime or offense, knowing it to be a crime or violation of law. The fact or state, number two, of having committed an offense, a crime, a violation, or wrong, especially against moral or penal law. <clears throat> okay, so Brandon, what does that mean? We'll look on the top of the next page. Guilt it speaks to what you have done. Guilt is always connected to what have you done. And because of the deeds you have committed, you know that you are guilty. So, example of this, your father found out that you lied, therefore you're guilty of lying. Pretty simple? Okay, let's keep going. Shame. It's a painful sensation excited by a consciousness of guilt. Meaning you've realized, oh, on the inside, I'm guilty. To the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, or ridiculous. So shame speaks to who you are. Guilt speaks to what you have done. Shame goes a little deeper. It speaks to who you are. So an example there, you lied to your father. Your father found you guilty, so he calls you a liar. Or he said, you, you, you lied to your dad, you're found out to, to have lied. Now he begins to say, you are a liar. It wasn't that you just lied, you're a liar. It wasn't that you stole something, you are a stealer. It wasn't that you just sinned, you're a sinner. Okay, you just didn't do something wrong, you are wrong. Your person is wrong. Condemnation then comes into place, and condemnation is a pronouncement of guilt, you're guilty. It's the sentence to punishment. So in a court of law, in the court of heaven, <clears throat> we stand before God. If Say you didn't know the Lord and you stand before him. He's going to look at his word. He's going to look at your life. He's going to measure it up to find if you're guilty or not. He's going to search. He's going to compare. And you'll be found guilty if you don't know the Lord. Because why? You've sinned. You're guilty. Once he says you're guilty, what happens? There's this sinking feeling of shame that he begins to work inside of you. And when he pronounces you're guilty, that is his condemnation over you. You're condemned to hell. That's his final verdict. Period. So you see how shame, guilt, condemnation all work together. And you can maybe mix them up in order. I'm not really going for the order just now. But that's how it works. If you are guilty of something, then you deserve to be condemned. Therefore, you will live in shame. Period. So, look at some of the signposts of shame. We're going to hit shame here specifically because, once again, this goes into um, revealing who you are as a person. This, this really cuts deep to us. So, number one. A signpost that you are in shame or struggling with it. There's a painful absorption with self. Shame is a powerful, self-centered emotion that attacks your identity. 
Shame causes you to only see how ugly, messed up, and wrong you are at your core. The devil uses shame to cause you to attack yourself and to remain self-centered. When you see yourself through the eyes of shame, you are fat. You are ugly. You are stupid. You're always late. You're never prepared. You're unredeemable. You are worthless. And you may not say those things out loud, but you probably think them in your heart. Look at this quote below that. In several places, the Bible depicts the attack of shame on our core identity in terms of how it alters our countenance, our facial expression. Shame is felt first in the face, which reddens and then loses radiance and vitality. So shame is just, it doesn't just work in here. All of a sudden, it begins to manifest outwardly. You're embarrassed. You want to hide, which is point number two, flight from exposure. Adam and Eve, they experienced the power of shame. It caused them to hide and be afraid. They wanted, to, they wanted to remain hidden because of the fear of exposure and embarrassment. If anyone gets too close to see what's on the inside, you flee, you divert, you put on your mask. Once again, another powerful quote. He says, shame prompts a flight to some self-created world of safe numbness. And so flight from shame only increases shame, making the prospect of looking in the eyes of the ugliness of self that much more incomprehensible. You see, you see some of this language of shame where you become extremely self-centered and self-aware. And we're going to get to it in a moment, but when you start talking about the cross, that means you have to get your eyes off of self. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. In other words, get your eyes off of you. But we're not going to go there just yet. Number three, violence against self or others. This is where shame gets really extreme. If we don't deal with it, those who caused your shame become the recipients of your violence, whether verbal or physical. Even those who come too close to seeing your shame can become the recipients of your outburst of anger. Deep-rooted shame causes you to believe that you can trust nobody but self. And shame will eventually lead you to believing that you are the problem, so you might as well get rid of yourself. So what are you most ashamed about? If we were to just to peel back your heart and see what's in there, what have you done in your life that you would say, God forbid, this thing ever gets out? If anyone were to ever see this thing about me, if anyone were to ever know about this concerning my life, if you have any of those areas, then the enemy has a hold and the power of the cross has not reached that place yet. And tonight's the night where we are going to step in to the power of the cross. Okay. Flip over to page, or flip back to page 33. <clears throat> so you're living in condemnation, you're living in shame, you're living in guilt. Just to make matters a little bit worse, we have this one guy who's called the accuser of the brethren. You guys heard of him before? 
Okay, if not, he's in Revelation 12, 10. He's also all throughout the Bible. Okay, but look at the definition of accuser. To charge with some offense, to speak openly against, to condemn mainly in a legal sense. So Satan comes, he starts accusing you about what you have done, and not only what you have done, but who you are. So remember that one time you stole, well, you're a stealer. One time you lied, you're a liar. One time you committed adultery, now you're an adulterer forever. And he just keeps telling you what you've done and connects that to who you are again and again and again. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for, for five minutes or 50 years. He's going to try the same thing again and again. So that happens, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you know what? You did sin. You did mess up. And so if you sin or make a mistake, the condemnation of the accuser, number one, makes you feel hopeless and like you've ruined everything. You, you're the reason other people's lives are horrible. It's your fault. You're the blame. Your family is the way it is because of you. It's your fault. Number two, he comes and speaks condemnation over you, and it's vague. It leaves you feeling confused, causing you to rethink everything as if everything is your fault. You start regretting. I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. You're just confused. There's a web of confusion all around you. And the devil just keeps feeding words into it. Number three, the accuser makes you feel abandoned so that you'll think nobody likes you and that they're talking about you. I mean, it's, sometimes people will, 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 I can't think of any specific examples, but I, I just remember times where people will think people at the church are talking about them. And they don't want to come back to church because people are talking about them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is what they're, this is what they're dealing with. They, they couldn't tell me who. It's super vague. It's kind of general. But people are talking about them. There's no real examples. But he'll, the devil will make sure you're off on your own. He'll separate you from the body of Christ. Then there's, there's the onslaught. Number four. Condemnation of the devil makes critical and harsh judgments about the intent of your heart. So, say you had a bad thought. Well, now that bad thought becomes the devil, he's speaking to you, oh, you really want that bad thought. You had a thought, say, for example, about maybe hurting someone because you're frustrated. The devil will come and say, now you're a murderer. You give the devil an inch, he's going to take a mile. He doesn't play fair. Number five, makes you feel like God is going to hurt you. That's an unhealthy fear of God. That's a wrong view of God. The devil's going to tell you God is out to get you. He's angry. He's the God of the Old Testament, right? You mess up, he's coming to hurt you. Number six, the condemnation of the devil makes you feel dirty and unclean. You're unlovable untouchable no one wants to be around you you're just unclean you're filthy you have a wrong view of yourself and number seven he speaks to you in a condescending way to make you feel worthless 
You'll never do enough. You'll never be enough. You can try your hardest. Guess what? It's not enough. You can be perfect today, but it's still not enough. It never will be. So why are you even trying? Speaking down on you, discouraging you, he's negative, fault-finding, all of those things. <clears throat> okay, let's get to some good news here. Does anyone want some good news right now? Can anyone use a little help? Okay, I need you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Okay, once again, I told you tonight, we're going to figure out what you really believe about the gospel. What you really believe about the cross. So let's take a moment here. We're going to get our eyes on the word of God. We're going to get our eyes on Christ and get our eyes off of self and get our eyes off of the devil. So Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. This is going to be just a little Bible study for a moment because this really needs to get into us. This is, going to, this, this is really going to help you. I was looking at it again today, and it just sets me free all over again. I love hearing the gospel again and again. We lose touch with it way too easily. Okay, verse 11, Colossians 2. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is that the old man has been put away. The new has come. Verse 12, you're buried with him in baptism when, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Here we go. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, or you can say the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I want to make mention of a handful of things. Okay, we're looking at our condemnation, our shame, our guilt. Here's what the Bible says in verse 13, or sorry, in verse, um, yeah, 13, 14, and 15. Look at these phrases. The end of verse 13. Having forgiven you all your trespasses. Number one. Number two, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. Number three, having taken it out of the way. Number four, having nailed it to the cross. Number five, having disarmed principalities and powers. So he's forgiven you of all your trespasses. He's then, he wiped it out of the way. He then, he took it out of the way, and then he nailed it to the cross. Therefore, he was able to disarm principalities and powers. Okay, hold on. We're still not getting it here. Look at verse 13 again. Having, forget, having forgiven you all trespasses. Another translation says, and I'm just going to read some Bible verses that match up with these. Another version says, having freely forgiven us all our sins. Verse 14, that phrase, having wiped out the certificate of debt. Another translation says, having canceled the certificate. Another version says, he erased 
Another version says, he destroyed the certificate of debt. Another translation says, he obliterated the certificate of debt. So what is a certificate of debt? It's this law compared to your life. It's not good. Your rap sheet, all the things you've ever committed is on a piece of paper and he compares it to his word. It's not good. And what does he do with that? All of your sins, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your condemnation. He canceled it. He erased it. He destroyed it. He obliterated it. Let's go a little further. Verse 14, having, it says he uh, has taken it out of the way. Another translation says he has set aside and completely removed. Another version, he erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul, he deleted it all the way and they cannot be retrieved. Another translation, he removed it out of the midst with the result that it is no longer there. Okay, we're, once again, we're just looking at the gospel. We're looking at the cross here. We're not looking at you. So do you believe these words? So then if you believe them, why are you living under shame, guilt, and condemnation? Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. The Amplified Version says, puts it this way. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those supernatural forces of evil forces operating against us, he made a public spectacle of them, exhibiting them as captives of his triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through the cross. Another translation. Then Jesus made a public, public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. One commentator says, he nailed our past sins on the cross. But not only this, he disarmed the principalities and powers triumphing over them. We do not have to be puppets or the victims of Satan or any evil spirit working within us or in the world. So, once again, do you believe this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? Do you believe the work of Christ or do you believe in yourself? We're just cutting right to the root of shame, guilt, and condemnation. Which one do you believe? It really is that simple. Who do you believe Jesus is? And what do you really believe and think about the finished work of the cross? So, Whatever you are most ashamed about, whatever you feel most guilty about, whatever condemnation you're standing under, if you take a look at this, Jesus has removed condemnation. The final verdict on you now is you're innocent and declared righteous. The word says, he who knew no sin became sin so that what? Okay, only Linda knows that verse in here. She, she believes the gospel. 
But are you tracking with me? Okay, I hope you are. He disarmed principalities and powers. What does that mean in Ephesians 2? I'm just going to flip there real quick. It talks about in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That used to be you. And then you believed in this gospel and Jesus disarmed them. And why did he even disarm them? Why did he do all this? You want to know why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He doesn't get excited to see you living in shame, guilt, and condemnation. He loves you. He wants you to be set free. And all we have to do is Simply believe. It was what Barry preached a couple weeks ago. Just believe. Do you believe this? So when you go home tonight, I, I, here's some homework for you. Go home and figure out what the gospel is and figure out what the cross is all about. Like You, you do it. I know I did, I did some work for you. I can give you my, my notes here or whatever. But how about you do it and you try and figure it out and put it in your own words. I remember when I would first went out and started evangelizing, I realized... I don't know the gospel. I'm just repeating what so-and-so said. That, guys, and it, when I would do that, it was so unoriginal. I felt so fake and so like, why am I just copycatting them? Like, I need to speak this from the heart. I, need, I should know the testimony of Jesus in my life. Okay, so if you got saved and now you're free from shame, guilt, condemnation, you have a friend. His name is Holy Spirit. And here, next page, page 34 at the top, if you sin or you make a mistake, now it's not condemnation, it's conviction, okay? This is where a lot of believers get really confused. They don't know the difference between the voice of the accuser versus the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts convicting us, and we're like, oh gosh, shame, guilt, condemnation. No, 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 that's not, he's convicting you, he's trying to call you higher, but we associate those strong feelings. Maybe a little shame comes in there and we associate it with the devil. And maybe it's the Lord. So number one, how can you discern between the two? The conviction of the Holy Spirit brings clarity about what you have done so that you can repent. I've said it before. I remember I used to wake up in the morning and just start repenting. And the Lord's like, Brennan, what are you repenting for? And I'm like, I don't know. I just think I should. He's like, stop doing that. If you're going to repent, be specific. Don't just, I'm sorry, Lord. For what? Be specific. What did you do? What exactly did you do wrong? Because once again, the devil is going to be extremely vague. He's just going to be a general broad stroke of your life, and it's going to be really vague. The Holy Spirit, if he's convicting you, you will know what you did wrong. You will know if you said something with the wrong attitude. You know. You may have said the right thing, but you're like, man, I know I didn't, I, my heart wasn't right. That's the Holy Spirit. But the devil will have you like, did I say it right? Maybe I didn't, I don't know. Uh. No, no. The Holy Spirit, he brings clarity. Number two, the Holy Spirit calls you closer to forgive you. So he wants to forgive you, but he actually wants you to come close. 
Okay, this whole thing, people say it all the time. Guys, this is so, this is so false and not true. People say, hey, I'll start coming to church when I get my life right. What do you, so you're going to keep running, you're going to go oh, get away from God to try to get right. No, no. The only place you can get right with God is with God. So when you sin, you messed up. You need to train yourself to go exactly to, directly to him. Don't play the funny business of, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll wait till he calms down. No, no, no. You just messed up. Go to God if you want to be right with God. That's the only way. So the Holy Spirit will call you close. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to wash you. <clears throat> the washing of the water, of the word. Number three. He teaches you to honor and respect the Lord. This is healthy fear. The Holy Spirit will produce a healthy fear of God in you. Ask Him. Do you ask Him, Lord, produce healthy fear in me? Number four, <clears throat> the conviction of the Holy Spirit. will show, He'll show you His perspective so that you know His judgment is fair and right. The Holy Spirit, part of his role is convincing you that the Lord is good. He's fair. His judgments are right. Number five, the Holy Spirit leads you to feel hopeful that everything will be okay. He really will. He'll lead you. And if you, here's the thing. If you, if you don't feel hopeful about some things, it's because your eyes are on yourself. But if you put your eyes on the Lord, he will lead you that, hey, you know what? The Lord is sovereign. Everything will be okay. It really will. <clears throat> Number six, the Holy Spirit speaks face to face with you to call you higher. Okay, the Holy Spirit starts convicting you. It's not him taking his boot and just kicking you down to the ground, deep into the soil. No, no. He's saying, come, come, let's go higher. I want to speak to you face to face. Look at me. Stand up. Look at me. He'll bring correction to you face to face, eye to eye. He's calling you higher. He's calling you to stand uprightly before him. And number seven, the Holy Spirit disciplines you for your benefit and from the place of embrace. I remember some of the, the, the severest moment of discipline in my life. I won't get into the whole story of it, but I remember when he brought discipline and correction to me, and I, I felt it at my core. Like my soul felt it. I felt his correction and discipline, but I also felt his embrace, and it was real. And it taught me that whenever God is correcting me, I must directly associate that with his love. So anytime God corrects you, you have to make a divine connection to he's correcting me because he loves me. Which means you don't run away from him, you run to him when you need correction. So Romans 8, we know this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3.18, he believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already and then john 8 when jesus raised himself up and he saw 
and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So this leaves us with two reasons why you are still walking in shame, guilt, and condemnation. If you find yourself, I, I'm still under this thing, what's, what's going on? <clears throat> I believe simply there's two reasons. The first reason is that there's unbelief in your heart about the cross. You just don't believe it. And you're saying, like, you're not got me saying, yes, I believe it, Brandon. But in, in your heart, you're like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it. It's unbelief. It really is. Your shame, your guilt, your condemnation is not greater than the cross. I don't care how strong it feels in you. It's not stronger and greater than the finished work of the cross. That's not possible. So that means there's unbelief. You don't believe. But you, you say, yeah. But your heart says, no. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. It's unbelief in you. So, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. The other reason you're still struggling with shame in your life is because John Piper, he coined this term. There's this thing called well-placed shame because you're still doing the wrong things. You're disobeying the Lord. Therefore, he's allowing you to live in shame. It's actually a tool in his hand to get you to stop doing that. To where you shouldn't feel good, you shouldn't be excited and joyful walking in sin. Right? Okay, well, you guys don't believe me. Here, let's keep going here. Let's, let's, let's look at some scripture here. Flip your page over. All right, page 36. Is there ever a time where you should feel shame? I know this, there's a huge shame culture. Don't you shame me? Don't you, you know... All that stuff. Well, in the Bible, there is a place where shame is good and necessary if it's used by God. God will use it for your good. Don't believe my word. Let's believe this word right here. Okay, in your page. Is there ever a time where you should feel shame? Okay, look at that scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brother? Later on in there, chapter 15, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Another verse, 2 Thessalonians three fourteen. He says this. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but they're busybodies. He's talking about people who aren't working and providing for their family. Now those who are of such, we command, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Okay, it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If 
you don't believe me, you can read it. That's what he says. And he finishes saying, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. One of the ways God will admonish you as a son is he will allow you to be in shame if you're not willing to repent for your sin. I mean, at the end of the day, you will thank God. He will use whatever means to get you right. In the moment, you're going to be like, oh, God will never shame me. No, no, he will. He'll use whatever it takes to get you right. So there is a place for shame. So you have to ask yourself, Lord, am I doing something that's not pleasing to you? Is that why I'm still struggling with shame in my life? And if the whole, once again, you flip back page 34. You ask him that, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring clarity about something, then there's no reason for you to have shame. But if it's, it's confusing, hazy, foggy, you don't really know, you're just kind of shooting the dark hope, and maybe it's that thing over there. No, no, be specific. If it's unbelief, be specific. Okay, and then look up there a little bit on top of the page 36. Or sorry, sorry. Let's go over the page 34. I know we're kind of flipping back and forth here. But the issue of condemnation is a gospel issue. Let's read this paragraph together. When the devil comes with condemnation, he is coming after the seed of the gospel that was planted in your heart. He is coming after your position in Christ. He can't steal it from you, but you can give it up. Don't hand it over to him. Remember the cross and Christ crucified. The blood of Jesus is our only hope for remaining in a right relationship with the Father where all the things that could have condemned us have been forgiven. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years or 40 minutes. It is by, through, and in the blood of Jesus that the Father established His covenant with you, and it is by Christ's blood that you remain in a covenantal relationship with the Father where He accepts, approves, and embraces you as a son or daughter, even in the midst of your failures and shortcomings. Make much of the cross, not your sins. If you put your eyes on the cross of Jesus, he will do a work in your heart. You confess your sins, he will do a work in your heart through the cross.